Hola and happy Cinco de Mayo to all of those who observe. We got a jam-packed show for you today, so let's go ahead and jump in. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe Bramley, and on this show, we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, let me go ahead and set the roadmap. We are talking about working with freight Influencers. Yes, a new word that I kind of came up with last night. I already bought the domain. So if anybody is out there trying to think about securing that domain, I already bought it. Probably won't do anything with it, but it's secured just in case. Then we've got a couple of guests on for today. Actually, three. We got Ken from ShipStarter. He's breaking down logistics content marketing strategies. Then we got Tommy and Robert from a platform called Get Swift. They created essentially it's a, a software platform that helps with local food delivery, um, connecting, especially how I got introduced to this was through uh, local produce and delivering that to my house. So they create and manage the software that actually powers uh, activities like that. And then we're going to end the show on some fun facts about the logistics of tequila because it is Cinco de Mayo. So it'd kind of be fun to, to dive into a little bit of that history. But for our first topic, talking about working with freight freight. Influencers. Let's talk about, you know, sort of the power of content marketing. We we mentioned that a lot on this show. I'm sort of a product of the power of, of content marketing. I, I started my blogging career back in 2007, evolved into video and radio and, you know, different kind of opportunities, including being on Freightwaves and having my own show. So I know the power of video, but I also know that most folks just aren't comfortable with it. They would rather not be in front of the camera and they would rather focus on what they do best. So we're going to talk about how you can really take advantage of working with video and different styles of content without actually having to be on screen. And that is really focused on working with the rising number of freight fluencers that we find within our space, especially over the last two years. And I, I want to read this stat off to you from Stacked Marketer, which is a great email newsletter. If you're into any kind of marketing news, uh, their email is, is one of the best. And I read it every single day. Tons of valuable insight. But they had a stat in one of their emails the other day that said, user-generated content accounts for 39% of the weekly media hours consumed by Americans. That is a lot. And the reason that we consume so much of that content is because user-generated content or UGC is really trusted much more than a highly produced commercial or a highly produced advertisement, especially on platforms like TikTok, where you have folks that are creating content on that platform about things that they genuinely like, and then advertisers or brands can go onto that platform and then see how well that this content has been working online. And they can actually repurpose that content and pay the creator and work with the creator. And because they already know that that content has performed well organically, they already know that it's been resonating, they can check out the comments that are on posts like that. So they can use that in their future marketing. So there's a 39% of Americans are, are spending or it's 39% of the weekly media hours that is being consumed by Americans is UGC content. So when you think of UGC content, you're thinking of user-generated content that you didn't actually go out and pay an agency to create, or you didn't create that in-house. You're utilizing a third party for that content. So 
if you hate being on camera, but also want to dive into content marketing, the first big thing you need to do is determine your end goals. Because if you determine your end goals of what you want that content to achieve, then it's much easier to reverse engineer and and find the ways on how to get to that point A or get to that point B from point A. So determine your digital goals first. And, And a few things that come to mind is, are you focused on recruiting? Is it drivers? Is it employees? Are you trying to attract customers, partnerships? Are you trying to build awareness? You know, maybe it's a combination of a few of these or or one or two of them. But starting with the end goal is probably the most important aspect of working or trying to attempt to start, you know, creating content online using UGC. So now that we kind of have, you know, a goal in mind of what we want to achieve, the first step really is figuring out the who. Who's the content and the type of creator that you want to target? And there are several different buckets that I kind of like to throw these into, especially when it comes to freight. Because drivers, I have harped on this in a few different episodes that with drivers in particular, they have the most powerful social media in all of freight. They have hundreds of thousands of followers across several different social media platforms, whether it's YouTube or TikTok, um, sometimes Twitter, Instagram in particular, um, and and Facebook as well. I guess you still have to consider Facebook um, when you're talking about user-generated content. But primarily, they have these content that they have already created out on the internet, hundreds of thousands of followers. So if you're trying to work or if you're trying to secure drivers or, you know, training school or, um, you know, driver interviews, things like that, that's who the first group that you probably want to target as far as a a freight fluencer is concerned. Now, next on the list is sort of a rising case and it's media personalities. Over the last couple of years, I mean, Freightways has been around for three or four years now. And they were really sort of the first like central place that really incorporated a a media news entity. I really attribute and kind of, uh, not attribute, but I would I compare a lot to the rise of sports media to the rise of freight waves media and and how similar both of those rises have been you know having worked in sports and then also you know, obviously working for freight waves there's really been a rise over the last couple of years, especially since COVID, of different media personalities, not only that work for freight waves, but also independent media folks as well. So there are are, are I see it as being one of the fastest and little used segments as far as, you know, working with a freight fluencer is involved because whether you're trying to target, you know, different um, stories to tell and different, you know, ways to tell those stories, using media personalities is a sure win because they have the experience and they have the exact talent on camera talent that you are looking for. Now, I'll also throw in consultants here too, because consultants have been around for so long. But the trick is to finding the consultant that you can work with on a referral basis and one that you actually trust. And also, I would throw in any consultants, you know, sort of get a a leg up if they're already creating content online. a A lot of the consultants that I know of personally, they create more written content. Um, it's more of a blog-based style. And, and that's where they rec- make their recommendations on who you know you should do business with or who's a good partner potentially in the future. I would just suggest you know to, to look out for the ones that are already f- creating content online first. And that's usually going to be you know, in your driver area, your, your, your media personalities. And then in a, a certain 
companies, you will find, you know, one or two personalities that are very comfortable on being on camera. And so that that's a few different ways of who to look at as far as, you know, the, the I guess the industry segments that we are working with within freight itself. And then the next step you want to take is you want to vet the profiles of the, the people that you're targeting. You want to weed out the crazy ones. You want to focus on A, who is making content around your business goal. And then B, this is just a general rule that I sort of follow just in business in general is to only do business with people you would actually want to have dinner with. And so that's kind of how I would suggest approaching the vetting process is you want to make sure that, you know, sort of the engagement is real on their accounts. Look for, you know, certain things that you want to look at is look at their following to follower ratio count. You don't necessarily want to work with somebody that, you know, for example, on Twitter that maybe is following 100,000 accounts. That right there is sort of a little bit of a red flag that, hey, you know, they're, they're, it's the follow for follow method. So those, you know, that genuine engagement probably isn't there for a platform like that. But if they have a pretty good, you know, balance between what their audience is, is taking part in the conversations that they're looking at, then that's a good way to kind of tell if their engagement is real or not. But also don't compare this industry, the freight industry, as far as levels of engagement to somebody like a Kim Kardashian. This is completely separate. Uh, if you were getting more than I would say five likes on an Instagram post, you were doing significantly better than 90% of all freight companies out there. So I would look for genuine engagement. Are people asking questions on their posts? Do they seem genuinely engaged? Um, are they liking the post? Are they sharing the post? These are all things that you can see publicly first before you reach out to work with any of these great fluencers. Now, the next one, so you figured out the who, you figured out the why, now you want to figure out the how. So you want to connect with that person. Once you, you have a target on your list, or maybe you have several targets, you want to connect with that person and communicate that goal that you want to see. Or what you can do, because if you're going to communicate the goal that you want to see with that content, then chances are they're going to be creating new content for you. But there's another way that you can do it as well, especially from the lens of using content that they've already created. We kind of hinted at that earlier in the show with you know using UGC content from TikTok. That, that's a great example of existing content that you can take a look at and you can scroll someone's feed. And if it aligns, if that content piece aligns with your business goal and it's already performed well from an organic perspective, then that is just a, a perfect blueprint of how you can reach out to that, that person and then you can use that content and then take that content and then use it on your own platforms. And you can either establish a content syndication deal with that person. Um, that way, they're not spending extra time creating new content, but you could still take advantage of content that has already been created. It's already been vetted as far as the audience is concerned. And then you can take that and you can pay them you know, a license fee to use their content either one time or in perpetuity. And you can use it across all of your different social media channels channels. You can use it on your website. You can uh, you can even put some advertising behind it because if you know it performed well organically, then that's a, a surefire way to say, okay, this might perform really well as an advertisement versus you know just kind of throwing something up there and guessing that it might work. So then after you figured out those details, then you can start hammering out the contract details. There's plenty of templates online. You can you know sort of use this to build up your your, your 
freight fluencer contract and then utilize a, a, an actual real lawyer to look over that contract to make sure it's just, you know, extra ironclad. Now, there's a few different payment options um, of how you can approach this. And that's pay for content one time, ongoing or on a rev share which is kind of like a performance-based approach. Um, you can sponsor their content. They're already creating great content. So you can just choose to sponsor them instead of having them create new content or trying to pick and choose what existing content might be a, a good fit. So you can just pay and just do it in different packages. Um, so you can include, say, hey, I want to sponsor your podcast or sponsor your, your video series or sponsor your lives. I want to do it for, for four different episodes. And I want you to tag me in all of your social media posts. That's an example of a content package that you could build into your different uh, offerings and how you want to approach your different freight fluencer uh, deals. And then after you kind of do that, you kind of have, you know, from that lens, you have the contract in place, you hammer out the details, and then you work with that influencer to, to take it to the next level. Are they going to have certain dates that they need to abide by? Um, payment terms. A lot of freight influencers, a lot of influencers in general are one-person businesses. And so your, your 60 to 90-day payment terms just aren't ideal for one-person businesses. So if you can prepay, that's even better. You'll likely develop a much longer working relationship with that person. If you are allowing them to you know, have that creative freedom, they know their audience better than you know their audience. And so they can have that creative freedom to create new content around what your brand or service offers. They can invite you on to be on their show and then tell the story that way. Um, they can create social media-friendly clips for you. And they can send you all of these files. And then that that way you can use them at your discretion. So there's a lot of different ways to play around with this, but you need to make sure that you have it written in a contract first, how long you're going to, how, how much content is expected to be produced, and then also how long the ownership rights are, are retained and who retains those ownership rights. That's also a big deal among different content marketers out there is that if I'm going to create this content, are you going to use it for a year or are you going to use it for uh, for years to come? Because that affects my pricing. If you're only using it for you know six months, then that's one price. But if you're going to use this for six years, then that's a whole that's providing a totally different you know sort of shelf life for that content. So that's different pricing as well. I think there was a movie star um, recently that he did some stock photo images and took, you know, he was a struggling actor at the time. I think it was the, um, I can't, I'm blanking on his name, but years later, now that he's famous, his face is showing up on the side of, of buses as a stock photo because he didn't properly negotiate that that different uh, contract and the the perpetuity of the, the content with that contract. So it's a lot of different sort of nuances to it, but it's really about determining that end goal first, who you want to work with, and what does that content look like, hammering it out into a contract. And then that way, both of you, the, both the, the, the freight fluencer and the brand that doesn't want to be on camera can have a really happy relationship. And hopefully it can be the first of many relationships that you develop down the line and working with different influencers because it is growing. I mean, I think I saw a list about two years ago of the top 60 supply chain and logistics podcasts. And I think that we've already, since then, we've eclipsed 100. I, I would be willing to bet that we are over 100 now as far as folks who are creating content online specifically for the freight industry. So it is booming. Just be careful whenever you're out there making those decisions on what kind of content you really want to promote and what kind of content you would like to see if you don't want to create it yourself. If you're going to be extra picky, 
you might as well just go ahead and bite the bullet and create it yourself. But if you don't want to, there's plenty of opportunities to work with folks that are already creating this content and they're already online and they're already comfortable with being on camera. So you can utilize them to the best of your advantage. And then also the creator gets uh, a little bit of bump and pay and a little bit more incentive to keep doing you know, what they love to do. So I think it's a, it's a great sort of program that a lot of companies can take advantage of. Um, so that kind of rounds out working with freight fluencers and that part of the discussion. But our next guest, our first guest of the show is Ken Kowal. He is the founder of Shipstarter, and he's been in content marketing for more than a decade, specifically focusing on the logistics industry. So let's go ahead and welcome Ken into the show. Hello, Ken. Hello. How are you? Awesome earrings. Um, I love them. Oh, thank you. I figure I I like to uh, dress up depending on if Cyberly falls on like the live date um, of of a holiday. So I like to theme it. So I always get um, you know I, I appreciate when yeah, other folks know. Well, so I appreciate awesome. that. Now, now, Ken, when you your career history, you worked with various different logistics providers, um, shippers on on the logistics side and on the shipping side before you started to open up your own company, ShipStarter. What was the big reasoning for for making that jump to launching your own content marketing uh, business? Well, the I'll give you the, the the short version is one I always wanted to have my own business, but two I in on the when I was um, my last job working for somebody else I was in a sales role, and to be honest with you, I was pretty bad at it, so I wasn't selling <laughs> anything. But I actually got really good at the lead generation piece, creating leads for myself and opportunities, and I decided to kind of take that. Um, that the skill or that some one thing that I was good at. And I figured there would be logistics companies out there who understand the difference between salespeople who are good hunters and lead generation people. And those are good closers. I'm not a good closer. And so that's that, that was kind of the premise of uh, starting the business. I, I love that you said that because I feel like most marketers feel the exact same way. Like I love creating content, but the sales and like closing and the negotiation, it just, it gives me an anxiety and I just, you know, I, I fall yeah. at the first crack yeah. of pressure. Yeah. So I, I feel me, you on that end. Yeah. It, you know, I, was, okay. I was 40 years old when I, when I had that realization. And once I, once I realized I'm just closing, is just not my thing. I was able to focus on, on what I like to do best. And that's what makes a really good business owner is to recognize your strengths and then also, you know, sort of give, you know, the higher uh, or higher, higher or outsource, you know, folks who are much stronger in the areas where we are the weakest. Now, when you first made that jump, what was the first, I guess, sort of realization of working with logistics companies? Was there a an immediate need on a certain kind of software or was it, you know, something different um, that they were looking for initially? Um. Interesting question. So when I started, I kind of had a kind of an you know oh crap moment when uh, I didn't didn't have any customers lined up. I just I just I began things and it was it was initially my what I was offering was lead generation mostly through email marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. And what but then what I quick, quickly realized is it was there is a big need for for content and social media management. So uh, I've, I never really set out to be a writer. For example, I, I do do a lot of content mm-hmm. writing for. Logistics companies. That, that was just that was not the intent, but I but I quickly realized literally within the first two three weeks, you know, ten years ago, that that's where there was not op- op- some opportunity, and it's just grown from there. So so now about half of business is content writing, half of it is is email marketing. So it was really about getting getting closer and understanding what customers need, uh, logistics mm-hmm. companies needs, and in the, most cases, the or kind of the ideal scenario, I should say. Where where my organization provides most value to to customers is 
They've got skilled marketing people on staff that you know, they know how to manage social media better than I do. They probably even have some better writers than 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 I am. But uh, I'm I'm able to kind of translate the the real world real world logistics stuff, having been in the industry for so long, into good marketing and sales messaging. And that's just kind of the, the balance and and that that I, I've found with a lot of customers, and that that's the value that I bring to them. And I think too, that's also, you mentioned that that was your, uh, the initial want for businesses. And I feel like it hasn't changed much. It no, hasn't changed for you. It's, uh, that, that's what, no, that was sort of my feeling is it's really, it's, yeah. it's the same. Yeah, it really is. And um, so we, when you, also, oh, go ahead. I was, I was going to get, I just, you know, the, the converse, the sales conversations I have now, so I, fortunately I'm better selling, um, I guess, guess myself and what my company does when, <laughs> than when I was working for other companies. But yeah, the, the, the conversations are, are still very similar where there's, there, there's a recognition that having industry knowledge is very helpful. Um, but, but again, there, there's a lot of very capable and skilled marketing people, uh, at the companies that I work with and, 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 and most, most logistics companies. I think too, that that's so helpful to have, you know, that kind of talent in-house because they really are in the trenches and then they can just better guide your work and, and, and what you're out here creating. Now, you, you did mention sort of the, the, the power and the, and the big focus for you of email marketing. Where do folks mess up the most when it comes to their email marketing? I think the, a couple areas and e- email marketing is hard uh, and it's a lot of every company has tends to have different kind of opinions on what the right rated email market is, how hard to go, how, you know, just it's, 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 there's no cut and dry or, you know, one single philosophy that that, that companies have Uh, that to me, the the biggest thing, biggest things are consistency, uh, sending an email, maybe an email campaign out, you know, one or two emails and not getting the results they want and then, then abandoning it. It's mm-hmm. not being targeted enough or having goals. You know, as you mentioned earlier, you, you really need to be specific uh, with your e- your email um, email marketing campaigns. You, you want to know what you want to accomplish with them. You, you want to have a way to measure the success. You, you need to have a have you know you, you want to know what the out the outcome is going to be, or you want to be working towards an outcome. Um, and then the, the other part is not being specific or targeted enough with, with, with the audience itself. So, mm. and there's different types of emails. There, there's emails that maybe you're going to nurture warm leads with. You're going to try to grow existing customer relationships through different email campaigns. And if, if we're honest, there's some campaigns where companies will go out and, and they'll, they'll buy maybe email lists that, that are poor quality. So they basically end up spamming a bunch of people and uh, <laughs> getting a bunch of, of email bounces and things like that. So it's, it's really about, you know, con- consistency, uh, and you know, have knowing who your, what your goals are, and then being um, well thought out and thorough with your with your list building and your your audience building. I love that you brought that up because I am a staunch opponent against buying email lists. I've had to you know sort of work my magic on those in the past, and they never result in good metrics. And then all of a sudden, never. the marketing department is getting blamed for what the sales team went out and bought, you know, a 5,000 contact list that's absolutely worthless. Now, you had sent over some in in our pre-show doc that you had mentioned a recent case study on the power of email subject lines and one word that helps to increase open rates by fivefold. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign and why you think it was successful and also the the one word that that worked? Yes. So uh, I'll I'll save the word for for the the, the end end of this, but, and it's not, not that special or anything, but the, the, the point is that, you know, the, the goal with emails is, is to, the first thing they have to get open. 
Uh, obviously, the content of the email itself email itself is super important, and uh, you, you need a call to action. And you, you get you want people to take some type of action from, from the email, whether it's agree to a demo, uh, you know, conversation, whatever. Hmm. But the uh, you know the, the, the key is having a good subject line that people are going to open, and uh, just a, a campaign that uh, I worked on with with, with somebody recently. We, we had the word fuel in the subject line, and the the open rate was was fivefold from. From what it typically would be for that customer, so um, it, the the point being is that there's there's always kind of hot button terms or things going on in the industry that are going to get people's attention, kind of regardless, maybe regardless of what um, you know what you're selling or who you're selling it to. Right now, you know, especially in, uh, in in shipping, everybody's very aware of fuel prices being volatile and what's going on there, and that 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 term term worked. So you know. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the point being, you know, think about what's going to get a reaction or, or pique the interest of, of your audience just so, so they'll open the email because nothing else matters if they don't open the email. Right. I think that that's, that's a, a really key about using, I like that tip about using whatever's going on in the current industry news and try to apply that somehow with what your service or product is is offering. Now, we, we talked earlier in the show of sort of, you know, the, the power of content marketing, especially when it comes to video, but then also there are a lot of folks who just have no, they have no desire to be on camera. Um, what, what, I guess, strategies have you seen other companies take hold of that doesn't involve being on camera and being on video? Are, are there any successful tips that you can give to, to folks who don't want to be on camera? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it comes very natural to you, obviously. You, you do a great, great, job, great job with that. You. But, you know, you know if, if, if we're honest, a lot of people don't, don't like that part of it or they're not comfortable or, you know, whatever reason could be. And, and you know, your, your, your points about working with influencers are, are, I think are great. So the, you know, the kind of, that, that leaves, leaves a few other things. Um, I, you know, I, I know you're a big proponent of, of video content. I'm a big proponent of, of written content and, uh, that, you know, that what I mentioned earlier, I think is important. It's the consistency with it, but, you know, when, when you're creating that content, I think it's also important to have a voice, some personality, and you know, do something that's a little bit different because there's there's a lot of companies putting out blog posts and 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 maybe not maybe not as many putting out video, but it, it, you need to do something that 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 stands out. So 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 my voice is to um, you know be consistent, you know ha- have a have a have a different voice, do something to stand out. Don't be passive. Um, you know we're, we're probably as marketers, a lot of us are familiar with with HubSpot and with their mm-hmm. CRM, and you know I I use I use HubSpot. Um, but the, they did a great job uh, a few years ago of creating the term inbound marketing and a lot of belief that all companies need to do is write a blog post, just kind of, you know, maybe just post it on social media and the leads are going to come pouring in. And that, that's, that's, that's not how it works realistically. So um, my, my point is it's the, you know, you, you, need to, you need to be doing more than just kind of creating content and, and waiting for people to come. You need, you need to be pushing it out. So, so proactive, consistent. You know, think think of small things. Every company has things they're experts in. They possibly data they can share that that's unique to their customers or valuable to their customers. Um, you know, so so it's about it's about pushing out even if it's you know small LinkedIn posts, it's small short videos, it's small um, you know sm- small short blog posts or things on LinkedIn. But just be active and be consistent and and you know keep keep put pushing information out there. It just doesn't have to be videos. It doesn't always have to be videos of, of people or, or people talking on screen. It can it can be in a lot of different formats. 
100%. Because I, I even noticed like sort of a drop in engagement on my videos that I published to LinkedIn comparative to the text-based posts. And I sort of theorize that people just, you know, sometimes they just don't want to watch a video and they just want to read something instead. So I think that there is absolutely room to do both of those things. And so when companies are coming to you and they they want you to create, you know, an email campaign or, you know, blog posts and sort of a, you know, a content marketing strategy, how do you approach the the dreaded ROI question? How do you, I, I guess, determine that ROI? Is it really just as simple as you know determining the end goal and then reverse engineering it, or are there other components to that strategy? Uh, that, that's a good good question, and it's difficult. It's interesting to me how hard it is for companies to measure ROI. And um, I would say I, I know one <laughs> one customer that. that it does it really well, but it, it's really complex. And you know the reason mm-hmm. is, but by the time something turns into revenue, it, there's been so many touches potentially with that prospect. Could be you know trade show, email campaign, social media. So every, you know it's so it's often very hard to, to tie revenue back to a specific marketing act, marketing activity. But I, I, th- I think that's you know that, that kind of goes back to the point of you know being consistent and you know having multiple ways that you're you're reaching out. And, and connecting with customers, um, you know, so I guess it's okay that it's a little blurry. If, if you're covering all your bases, it maybe won't won't be so cut and dry. But uh, I absolutely think it's important to to be tracking tracking uh, your, the ROI of of your activities, like like you know, like trade shows. Again, not that it's easy, but you know, trade shows, campaigns. Um, you know, a lot of companies. Yeah, I I, I give you some. I complimented your your earrings. I'll compliment you on. I recommend any company who is interested in, in Google uh, running Google ads, pay-per-click, understand about mm-hmm. that. A lot of your, your content um, from the past on Cyberly and um, I think uh, other, other things that I've seen you post, you get into a lot of good detail that help companies uh, understand pay-per-click and, and do better with, um, you know, do, do better with how they approach those type campaigns. And, uh, you know, so I, I, like I said, I encourage people to, to check out what you, you've, you've published on that. But yeah, ROI is tough. Um, and very few companies really do it well, but um, I still think it's important. That, that yeah, because it's one of the the dreaded answers that executives hate, but it really it's applicable to really all of marketing roles. And that the answer is it depends. Uh, your ROI is going to be different for for every company. But I wasn't sure how I guess that conversation has evolved over the years, and if they become more clear on the ROI. But it feels like they're just you know more and they, more confused. They, but oh, go ahead. Yeah, I would say yeah. It's unfortunately I, that's one of those things too. That over ten years, I've, I've been. I've, if, trust me, if I had a better answer, I, I would give it to give it to you right now. But I, I, I see a lot of <laughs> that's why I, I like asking other people because I don't have the answer. The answer yeah. is it depends, and most folks just don't like hearing that answer. But that's the god honest truth. It depends on what your ROI is, and that ROI is going to be different for for every other company. And so, so Ken, as we get sort of close out the, this uh, this interview with last question, if you were to give tips to small business you know, freight companies out there, what sort of tried and true marketing strategies would you tell them to implement, you know, a, a, as soon as they can? Yeah. So I, I'm a big proponent of, you know, like, like we've been talking about a big proponent of content. I'm a big proponent of email marketing. I would, I would set some, um, you know, I would set a goal and define an audience that I would want to go after, you know, right away. You can just, you know, several things that, that we've talked about. So um, you know, but but that starts really with a good understanding of what your company does best. So you know, and and it, it's it's very easy for companies to fall into the trap of not wanting to miss some, any potential opportunity with anybody everywhere. Then they try to kind of project that they can do everything. So mm. 
you know, start by, you know, really being, being honest with, with yourself internally with the company about what you do best, who your best customers are. And, um, you know, you know, try, try to build some campaigns around, around the, the specific things. And it, it's, it's very easy, relatively easy to, uh, you know, say, you know, just a, a kind of a, a real a basic thing, you know, write, write a white paper or a blog post or, or create a, a video uh, explaining some concept that's important to your target audience. Uh, you know, share it with your, your email list. If, if you have one of those type businesses or go out and research them, don't buy a list, but go out and research businesses that, that fit in that kind of demographic. And then, then, then get, get it out there, uh, you know, put together an email campaign, put together some uh, social media posts. And uh, if you budget for it, maybe some pay-per-click ads, but, but take what you know and you understand or the, 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 the expert knowledge that your company has that is valuable to a specific market that you identify, segment of, of your market that you identify, and figure out a way to get your message and this that um, that knowledge in front of them. Uh, and that, that that's the first thing. And I, you know, I'm speaking kind of very generally, but it, it really is that simple: is is get the, your knowledge in front of customers you know or companies you know would be good, good customers for you, and then um, and then that's how you get the conversation started. And start small. Yeah, really. Don't overwhelm yourself. Don't try to be everywhere to, to everyone. Reverse engineer those goals with what you are already an expert at. All great tips, great great advice, Ken. Where can folks follow you and more of your work? Um, yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Kenneth Kowal, and uh, company is ShipStarter. And uh, my email is ken at shipstarter.com. I, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff. You, you know, you know, I've had a couple of good conversations and this is, this is what, I, what I, I live and breathe every day and I, I enjoy it a lot. And, uh, you know, if anybody has any questions or wants to get in touch, just shoot me an email or hit me up on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ken. Great advice and, and looking forward to connecting with you more in the future. All right. See ya. All right. Well, that was awesome. I mean, we, we, we really covered a lot of ground as far as content marketing is, is concerned. But the next interview, I kind of want to take it in a little bit of a different direction because now our next guests are Tommy Cooper. He is the global sales manager. And then Robert Bardunis. I am not going to pronounce that last name correctly. I am so sorry, but he's the chief operating officer at Get Swift. Um, Robert, how, how off was I on that pronunciation of your last name? I, I, so I grew up on the East Coast, and and I, you came closest anyone has in quite some time. It's Bardunius, but you know what? I'll take it. It's Cinco de Mayo. Let's just number it. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that because I, I have a difficult name, so I, I get it's mispronounced all the time. So it, it sort of just rolls off my back. So I'm glad, you know, when other people sort of feel that same sentiment. Now, I, I want to give a little bit of, of background because I, I was you know, last night I, I found you guys because I'm very passionate about sort of food deserts and food logistics and, you know, getting more healthy options to, to folks who really, especially in urban neighborhoods who don't have access to sort of fresh produce and, mm. and, and things like that. And I was sitting down, I was cooking dinner last night and I had found this company called Front Porch Pickings and they bring all this local produce and ground beef to my house. I made like some awesome like uh, beef nachos last night. So it was great. And I used all of that produce from local farmers. And so it was just sort of like a really uh, good moment for me personally to be like, wow, you know, I am supporting, you know, local farmers and it, the power of that platform 
is really created by your guys' software, you know, Get Swift. Um, there's also Delivery Biz Pro. You, you recently acquired them. I think that's who actually, you know, developed the, the site. But correct me if I'm wrong. Tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of the relationship about Get Swift, De- Delivery Biz Pro, and, and how you're trying to solve these complex problems. Yeah, so I, I'll start. And thank you for having us. I think, you know, when you think about, you know, food deserts and, and more importantly, distribution of produce and more importantly, distribution of goods on a local level. I think going into the pandemic, we saw a lot of people struggle to really get their needs met from a product delivery standpoint from local markets. Um, you know, you saw local businesses trying to support local customers. And and our role as a company has really been looking at, you know, on-demand delivery, recurring delivery. And, and we're looking though at those as you know, how can we as a company really democratize a lot of the software services that are available to large enterprises? How do you make that available to small to medium-sized business, to small to medium-sized enterprise, especially in a post-pandemic market of, I want it now economy. You know what I mean? I, I just want it now. And so, you know, our goal is really to enable those small to medium-sized businesses to get to get their products direct to customer. Um, and, and, and that's really what we're doing with the the, the pieces of software that we're bringing together. Um, yeah. Tommy, anything, uh, I miss anything on the software piece? No, that was kind of explaining the high level, kind of where, where Get Swift comes into, but I'm, I'm certain that you're excited to hear more about Delivery Biz Pro, speaking of that specific client. So we'll definitely dive into that for sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and Tommy, why don't you go ahead and elaborate? Because essentially that, you know, that, that's, part of your software is that the farm to table part of e-commerce yep. has sort of emerged over the last few years. How how are you utilizing this platform in order to, I guess, or how are locals utilizing this software to, to manage, you know, local produce deliveries? Are you reaching out to farmers? Are you reaching out to local businesses? Are you doing both? Like how does this sort of, I guess, software connection take place? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, you know, it really kind of started, what, 2008, Rob, right? The company started, we yeah. acquired them in 2019. Um, but the growth has, uh, has been tremendous. Started out in a small where uh, Delivery Biz Pro was founded in uh, Colorado and uh, has grown. We moved the headquarters to New York. And it's really been a lot of word of mouth. I mean, this farm to table uh-huh. industry is the niche that we stuck in. So we didn't try to go a full like e-commerce route you know, selling any type of merchandise. This has been strictly farm to table and growing the platform that way, which has shown a lot of the success and kind of the growth uh, throughout the country. Now globally, you know, Get Switch, which we'll get into, kind of brought this from just a small little town in here in the States to now Europe, Asia, Australia. So the growth has been tremendous. And so what is the yeah. relationship between this Pro and, and, and Get Swift? Robert, I'll, I'll let you answer. Yeah, no. So think of Get Swift as on-demand delivery. And that's, I buy something now, I want it now. That that platform, it's a workflow that we've all gotten used to. Uh, I order something, I get a text message, I click the little link and I see the car coming to deliver it to me. That's very much the, the workflow that we as customers are used to. The recurring delivery piece, which is the key part of Delivery Business Pro, or DBP as we call it, is recurring delivery. That's I buy something now, I want it every Monday or every week or every month. That kind of recurring model. and And then... We've evolved into, you know, all the pieces that are needed to really run that last mile. And more importantly, that local fulfillment of local products to local customers, that whole workflow and challenge, which is comes into things like human resource management. You know, I, I think, you know, a, a couple of years ago, you know, you may have a small brick and mortar store where you put in, you know, a 
in people's mailboxes, office mailboxes. You put in what their schedules are. You, and, and then if they can't do it, they contact the manager and you go back and forth. And we built a, you know, we utilize a platform called Scheduling Plus, which essentially takes on all of that human resource management and scheduling based around what your needs are and, and what your workforce can do. And so we're really looking to automate a lot of that and offer software to small businesses that have never really had access to that software before. Um, you know, and, and to Tommy's point, you know, a lot of the growth that we've seen, obviously, you know, and, and you witnessed it firsthand, the farm to table business, but really we're looking to utilize it for more than that. So now we're looking at dairies, you know, milk delivery. Uh, it's made oh, a wow. comeback. Welcome back to the 50s. Um, water <laughs> delivery. Uh, you know, we had one customer that was delivering hand sanitizer and toilet paper during the pandemic. Um, I think she's a billionaire living in the island somewhere right now. But but oh, think wow. about anything anything you would want delivered on a recurring basis. Uh, you know, we, we started there and then we started plugging everything else in. And so as, you know, sort of, I guess we, we find ourselves in this, you know, post-pandemic world, quote unquote, so I'm going to put quotes out there so nobody gets mad at me. Um, but as we find ourselves sort of in this current landscape of everybody wanting everything within two days, they want it on demand. You know, how is, is, is I guess, Get Swift, are, are they... Uh, prioritizing that need, not only for, for local businesses, but for other sectors as well. Do you, do you guys have any other, you know, sort of, I guess, plans on the horizon? Or is this really, you know, the, the, the produce and the, um, the, the, the fresh localness? Is that really where you're focusing your efforts? Well, why don't you, you start, Tommy, and then I'll jump on the back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Get Swift thing, as you can imagine, uh, the past, uh, what, two years, even before that, uh, you know, the interesting thing to keep in mind is these are for folks who wanted to take control of their delivery operations. So you had small businesses, you had so many companies, especially ones who had to close their brick and mortar, and this is all online. So this is the first time they're doing it. So enabling a software like GetSwift is basically saying, let's take your orders and in a digital fashion, let's give them to your drivers. Let's notify customers with the text messages and do everything automated like Rob was alluding to. So when you incorporate that technology into the delivery biz pro ordering experience, combining those two platforms was a great marriage. So we've been excited about that. Um, certainly, as you can imagine, with our different tech stack, there's different angles that we can go to. But this marriage is certainly something that's very exciting. Uh, but the GetSwift product alone is, is awesome. So it's really your simple delivery management software. Uh, if you want to look at it like in a very simple term, think about your Uber mindset. Think about your FedEx UPS. It's the opposite of that. It's for folks that are saying, I can do this in-house. We have drivers in our pizza shop. I have a local drivers who deliver my, my produce. Who deliver my clothing, and I need a software that can basically, you know, manage all this logistics, and that's really what GetSwift is in a nutshell. That's awesome. Yeah, and 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 just to wrap that up, I think a lot of what has really differentiated us is a lot of you know software as a service is the whole concept of one size fits all. Everyone's going to do the same thing. All businesses the same. Here's the workflow. Here's the model. You know, the kind of that Salesforce model. And what we've done on our side is is we're giving customers the tools to say you're not all the same all businesses are different and we're going to onboard you differently. We're going to treat you differently and we're going to give you different levels of service based on what you need. Um, you know, I, I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, once you start democratizing software like this, you have to be open to the flexibility of what are customers needs and, and really have a conversation back and forth with customers with regards to product roadmap. And I, I think that's something that we're very proud of, which is, you know, Hey, what are, what are your needs? What, what, you know, what is going to bring you the most return on investment? Obviously, then it becomes, uh, okay, how fast can you make it? Um, so you, you open up the doors like that to some customers who are like, 
well, I gave you an ID last week. Uh, where is it? And and it's not exactly how big you know technology <laughs> and big platforms work, but God knows we're trying to you know we're trying to get there. It's just I used to have hair when we started this, and now I'm bald. But it's that kind of like mentality of we're trying to help you as fast as we can. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I I think that that's all really great insight because you guys are solving a very complex problem, but it's already. I mean, for me, it's it's been a great addition to my life because the the software that you guys have developed allows me to have local produce and local meat from local farmers delivered every single week. I don't really have to think about it, and it's stuff that I need and I can schedule for the future, which is all you know really good insight. Plus, you're helping you know sort of add another revenue stream for a lot of these local businesses and and that I'm always going to be a big fan of. So if you are a local business and you want to get in contact, you you, you want to, you know, find more about, you know, whether it's Delivery Biz Pro or, or Get Swift, where should folks reach out? Uh, yeah, directly. Yeah. <laughs> sales at, sales at GetSwift.co, T. Cooper at GetSwift.co. We'll, uh, we'll take care of them. Absolutely. Perfect. And I think we have all of your contact information linked in the show notes. So folks, if you, you know, feeling a little lazy, just click one of those links in the show notes. And, and I appreciate you guys coming on, on the show and, and sharing this expertise. I uh, wish we had more time, but unfortunately we're running up against the clock, but I appreciate your perspective and, and everything you guys are doing because it is very beneficial. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. for having us. Thank you guys. See ya. <laughs> Well, that was, I mean, that was a really great, I don't know that, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily sort of, um, I, I guess, find, we don't interview or we don't really talk to a lot of different software companies on this, on this show. And so that's something I'm going to hopefully, you know, be changing in the future because they really are sort of at the front lines of trying to empower local businesses and, and really not just, you know, with Get Swift in particular, that's a local, you know, a local angle of it as well. But they're, you know, they're, I, I think that they're providing a really great service. And so uh, I just wanted to share sort of that insight with you guys in case there's, you know, similar programs, you know, in your local area where you can have access to, you know, local produce and start eating better because, you know, health is, we've learned over the last couple of years, just the utmost importance and where your food comes from is also extremely important and how often that food gets to your table. So from farm to table, making it easy, um, check them out at getswift.co. Um, they have a really great website too, by the way. It's really, it's really well designed. So going into our final topic, I'm glad that we were able to make some time for this today because I was scrambling doing some last minute research on, on how the logistics of tequila works at Cinco de Mayo. So let's go ahead and dive into, you know, sort of some fun facts that I found out. I'm on the logistics of tequila. And first and foremost, I have to preface this with something that I learned just this morning and my, you know, I guess my ignorance is showing, but uh, Cinco de Mayo is not about celebrating the Mexican Independence Day. The Mexican Independence Day is actually on September 16th. Today, Cinco de Mayo is actually more of a celebration on Mexico defeating France in the Battle of Pueblo after France invaded their country. So that is what Cinco de Mayo is about celebrating. And it's really a larger celebration in the U.S. with, you know, great music and food and, of course, tequila. But how did tequila become such a popular drink? And that was really where a lot of my historicalness, I guess, comes from, or my historical passion comes from, because it starts as early as the year 900 when the Aztecs discovered the blue agave plant. That is a big sort of prickly plant that you might see on the screen right now. It looks like a giant cactus. But essentially what happened nine in the year 900, the Aztecs, uh, it was a bunch of these plants where lightning struck them and the locals noticed a sweet smell that was coming out of them. So they thought that this was a gift from the gods. And so in to Mexico, now that we have, you know, tequila around, it's sort 
I guess, more massly produced, there's a lot of sort of misconception on how, how to actually drink it. In the U.S., we primarily just shoot it with lime and salt. But in Mexico, it's supposed to be sipped on like a bourbon. And it's not with salt and lime, but you sip on it like a bourbon. And Mexico also lays claim to the word tequila, much like Kentucky and the word bourbon. So it's kind of a little bit of similarities there between the word bourbon, um, the derby, the Kentucky Derby is this weekend as, as well. So it always kind of falls around the same, you know, sort of date wise with Cinco de Mayo and the Kentucky Derby. So it's kind of cool to see those similarities there that Mexico owns that word tequila. You cannot, you know, sort of like, uh, I guess, France with the word champagne. You cannot call something champagne if it's not made in France. So Mexico lays claim to the word tequila. And if you want to make tequila, all of tequila comes from Mexico. And about 90% of it comes from a little small town in Mexico. And to find good tequila, you need to try to look for family farms who focus on the blue agave plant. So looking at the labels on the bottles, you can see um, if you look at a lot of different tequila bottles, they have 100% blue agave or 100% agave written on the label. If they don't have that written on the label, then it's not legit. Um, then it's only like a, you know, about 50% of blue agave that is actually used within that tequila. So look for that 100% agave label. It doesn't necessarily have to say blue agave. If as long as it says 100% agave, then that is the real stuff. And that's, you know, the people who are buying like the, the mixtures, that's the, the people that are shooting the tequila and not sipping on it like a fine, uh, like a fine drink that you would like a cognac or a bourbon. And then another fun fact that I found is that with these farms, the, the plant is harvested after seven years. So you see these cactuses and you think that they, you know, they're almost like succulents where they just grow like wildfire. And that's not the case at all. It takes seven years for these plants to mature. And every even today, it's harvested by hand. We saw, we played a clip earlier about the harvesting process and the leaves are all chopped off using this specialized tool and then thrown into a shredder where it enters into the next step. And then the next step is, uh, I can use an example from this Casa Sousa uh, in Mexico. They break down their awesome distillery, but they break down the logistics process of their own tequila that they make in-house. And so three approaches, or they have three approaches to the extraction and the refining of the sugar from the blue agave plant. So they have it, what's called the Tahona extraction, which involves pressing a stone, the Tahona, against the floor where a small bed of the agave lives. And then they have the next type of extraction is called a mill extraction, where it involves cooking and pressing torn agave through iron rollers. And then the other process that they have is called the diffuser extraction, which is mostly using you know, a process of water and conveyor belts until you get that sugar from the plant dissolved. And then it's, you know, sort of a mixing process until you get that concentrate of the alcohol level that you're looking for. And then also that same website, they have an entire like blog series on how they think about the logistics process. So if you want to, you know, sort of dive in a little bit deeper on how they think about their own logistics process, because if you figure, you know, tequila is only made in Mexico. So they're shipping this product globally. This is, and if you're looking at the screen, this is an example of how this one company tackles their distribution 
all over the world. So they, they have a really great uh, website. So check out, you know, casasalza.en if you want to check out more of, you know, their logistics process and how they actually ship tequila. Because I, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating sort of look into the, the, the culture around, you know, sort of what makes holidays great. And what makes holidays great usually is the food, the music, and the drink that you're sipping on. And that's, I think that there are a lot of sort of similarities that when it comes to this different process, because we talked earlier about how bourbon can, you can only call something bourbon if it comes from Kentucky. But then there's also another connection too, where a lot of distilleries and a lot of folks or a lot of businesses in Mexico import bourbon barrels from Kentucky and they use these bourbon barrels to age their tequila. I didn't even know that tequila was something that you could age until doing research for this segment. So knowing that you can do, uh, you, you can actually have aged tequila anywhere from, you know, there's, there's the fresh version, of course, where it just goes straight into the bottle. Then there's also anywhere from uh, one to three years, and then anywhere over three years, sometimes 25 years is how long this tequila is aged. So if you see it in different colors, if it has a little bit of a bourbon smell, the reason that they have or a bourbon taste to it, the reason it has that smell is because they're importing these bourbon barrels from Kentucky in order to store their tequila is is great. You know, Discovery Channel has um, this Moonshiner show. I just found the mo- I found a clip on YouTube um, that I didn't really watch like the whole episode, but the clip was of this Moonshiner from you know West Virginia, the Carolinas, that you know region of the country. He flew down to Mexico and he was you know sort of complimenting them on the all of the same sort of techniques that he uses in Moonshine and how it's very very similar to how they distill tequila as well. And so I thought that that was a really great watch. So if you're interested in that, just go Google it on or find it on YouTube on the Moonshiners, you know, checking out how tequila is distilled because that's where the the guy brought up the notion that you can import these barrels from Kentucky in order to store your tequila over a long period of time. Um, And they opened up like a 25-year-old barrel, which was amazing. I didn't think that tequila... Uh, not to, I guess, sound repetitive, but I did not think that tequila had been around for that long. So really cool story. I hope you guys, you know, as soon as you are are sipping on your tequila today and then you sip on your bourbon on Saturday, just know that there's, you know, some different similarities there. But that's sort of the brief history of the logistics of tequila and how it sort of came about. Now, as we have a few minutes left here in today's show, future of, of supply chain is just a few days away. If you haven't bought your ticket, I don't know what you're doing because it's going to be just an influx of talent uh, that is going into you know Rogers, Arkansas. It starts on Monday and Tuesday. A lot of us are flying in on Sunday. And it's just going to be a really good time. It's that work hard, play hard mentality. I actually spent the last weekend making these, uh, an NFC series. So if you don't know what an NFC is, it's a near field communication. Um, it's basically just like a little, uh, programmable computer chip that you can put onto different stickers or you can put onto different items you can, and it pops up more information. So for example, my NFC is I did five of them. I put stickers on them. I had these stickers custom made and then I applied, I spent three hours applying these stickers to these little chips that have the NFC device in them. And then you program, you just use an app. That's a, it was a $3 app. And I used it to program these NFCs to bring up a custom link. So it, this custom link is sort of my electronic business card. And I think that, you know, that's sort of my favorite thing about attending conferences is seeing, you know, what, how can I get creative 
within supply chain? How are other folks getting creative within supply chain? I'm going to be able to witness that firsthand, uh, you know, with the different merch that some companies may be offering, you know, different ways that they talk about their business. So that's really, you know, my bread and butter of when I go to conferences. I love to see how other businesses are choosing to market themselves, whether it's a booth, whether it's a presentation on stage, whether it's the merch that they have within the booth itself. So it's it's all going to be really fun. We're going to bring you lots of more coverage, especially from that event. We're going to be broadcasting live. Cyberly is going to be live at the event around 4.15 on Tuesday. So if you are attending and you've already, you are one of the smart people who bought your tickets, come by and say hello by the FreightWave stage. We'll be live. Cyberly will be at 4.15 working on some good content in order to share show you guys there. And then we'll also, of course, record a bunch of interviews to be played on Cyberly at a later date. But that about does it for this week's show. If you want to check out more of my work, just head on over to everythingislogistics.com and you can see all of my socials and all of the Cyberly links and things like that. Um, Podcast, website, all that good stuff is all available there. But until then, I will see all of you guys and gals over at FreightWave's Future of Supply Chain and we'll be back real soon.